Hello, everyone, and welcome back for the next edition of the Sports Pro Stream Time Podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the community lead, and I'm joined, as always, by my CEO, Nick Meacham. Nick, how's it going? Oh, good. I'm a little bit tired. I was, uh, again, up up late on uh, on this uh, sun, well, Sunday night last night, watching a bit of the NFL action. Lots going on there. Lots of sport all over the weekend uh, happening. Um, so lots to, to consume, but uh, feeling good otherwise, feeling peppy. I had a tough night, though, with the kids, so I, I am sort of tied up with a lot of coffee and caffeine keeping me buzzing. So if I get erratic, if I start stuttering my words even more than normal, then that's probably why. Well, thank God I didn't stay up late to watch the Bengals. I'm just so tired of Zach Taylor. So um, thankfully, with the help of our friends at Delta Train NFL Game Pass, I was able to tune in and watch it this morning and, you know, start my Monday off with a little bit of disappointment. That's how I like to start my weeks, Nick. Yeah, well, ups and downs, smiles and frowns is a saying I have from some song that I heard a long time ago that stuck in my head for years. So uh, there we go. The show must go on. Well, some people that won't be disappointed, though, Nick, we did release the shortlisting for the Sports Pro OTT Awards. Um, Hopefully anyone listening to the streamcast should be aware that after several years, thanks to COVID, the Sports Pro OTT Summit is finally returning to its home in Madrid. Um, That's taking place on November 29th, going through December 1st. So it's going to be three days. That's also going to include the OTT Awards, which I just mentioned, which as far as I'm aware nick it's a it's a gala it's a black tie event so i'm gonna have to buy some new clothes but today we came out with the shortlist so there's a lot of great companies and their great organizations um that are really sort of highlighting you know the best of the best in this industry right now yeah we had by far record entries for for the awards this year um and we've got a huge array of incredible judges involved for the whole process it's been through a couple of phases already and there's a couple more phases to go to get to the ultimate winners so there's a long road ahead but um, just the quality of companies, the breadth of companies. It's showing the industry, I think, has, has come a long way since we first started these awards and, and even the OTT Summit a few years ago uh, at the scale of what they're doing and the impact it's having and, and the stories they can tell now because I guess the progress of this industry, the sports streaming world and the OTT space has come a long way. And so everyone's really interested now more than ever. It's not just the it's not a micro community anymore. Like everyone is interested in what's happening in this space right now. And there's a lot of cool companies doing cool things. So uh, excited to see uh, everyone who, who comes to not only the OTT Summit in Madrid, but also the awards. It's going to be a great few days and a great uh, event and a great dinner. I think we're doing that middle of the event. So I won't be able to. We won't be able to let our long, long locks and hair down for that one too much because I think we even might be getting the early morning start the next day. We need to talk to Will about that, but uh, it should be a fun night. And uh, looking forward to seeing who does get the get all the prizes. I don't know how many categories are there altogether. There's, I believe, eighteen this year. We've added, we've included some uh, individual awards this year. But the one point you did make, Nick, is. There's about just under 90 judges. Um, They come from sports organizations, broadcasters from all across the globe. And what I would say is Nick and I didn't have any say in the outcome of this. Um, We won't know the outcome of this. So if you didn't get the results you you were hoping for, just know um, it wasn't Nick or I. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. And I'll, I'll get on my soapbox for a second, though. From what I have seen of some of the entries from some of the organizations who have got involved, one thing I'll give you a little bit of advice in, 
make sure you follow the details of what the entries are asking and provide some insight as to how things are performing. Don't just paint a nice little PR narrative. You can tell who people have really put the effort into these things and not, and the scoring by the judges reflects it. So there's a little there's a little piece of advice for anyone who ever enters an award. Make sure you give as much insight as you can. Everyone gets afraid of giving too much away. Um, but look, this is a confidential process. So there's my soapbox. So we want, we're not gonna, the judges aren't going to let anything out of the bag. Uh, and we won't let out of the bag if there's anything in the entries because we're, uh, we're not actually going through every one of them one by one. The judges are the ones doing that. Uh, please share more. Absolutely. But, you know, Nick, enough of the OTT Awards and the OTT Summit. There'll be plenty of time for us to enjoy a Cerveza or two in Madrid with all of the lovely stream time listeners. Hopefully, as many of you as possible get out there. But we'll jump into, you know, the content for this week's episode because there are quite a few things that we want to discuss. And the first one to kick us off is Formula One. Um, it's obviously been a very big year for them and some of the things they've been able to do at their growth stateside, some of the deals with ESPN. But they've now secured a, a long-term partnership with their main European broadcaster, Sky Sport. Um, which will give them exclusivity in the UK and Ireland until 2029, which is notable, and we'll talk about that, as well as some more exclusivity in Germany and Italy. Um, so, Nick, you know, I mentioned the length of this. You know, how unique is this, and how big of a deal is this in terms of how business has historically been done? Yeah, I mean, for those that aren't familiar with the setup in in the UK and Europe, there's there's certain anti competition laws which have restricted. Um, media rights deals uh, for major sports properties to extend over uh, is it three years or four four year cycles um, but lately we've started to see those deals getting done longer and longer which in theory are against that existing framework uh, but this deal uh, with the renewal uh, element or the extension of the existing deal gives them something like what is it a seven year runway in some of those markets, which is basically unseen by a couple that I can think of, which is like Vibe played with Premier League and maybe F1 as well. Uh, some, yeah, I think, I think there's a couple of other examples at best. But if this is so, this is quite a big deal because of the length you're going from four years, which historically the, the, the narrative uh, is quite accurately that it's very hard for particularly both new and existing operators to build, a, well, actually, mainly new operators to build a business in a couple of years around those audiences. You see all the decks from like consultants about building businesses in any sector you work in. Uh, they normally take three years to get close to a mature, uh, mature number. So if you need three years to work out if buying all these rights and paying a premium works for you, it's too long before you've already, you're already going to be in the tender process for the next cycle before you know if it's actually worked. So it's pretty basic stuff that's really holding back the industry, although the initial intent was to make sure no one monopolized those rights. Um, but now things have changed a lot. Streaming has changed the, the world and the way things work. And I don't think there's too many um, parties that are really, let's say, um, concerned with longer deals being done other than you know com competitors wanting to tap into and break into a market because they have to wait longer for it to happen so that that's just that holistic that shift that extension of those deals extending out to uh, effectively what's giving them a seven-year runway on those rights uh, is quite a significant deal um, to begin with uh, adding in that they already have that existing relationship in place with f1 and sky in those markets so they're just going to be continuing to building and, and working together. It's one of the most, I think it's one of the most comprehensive true partnerships between broadcaster and rights holder that exists in sports full stop, you know, because of the, the, 
the 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 breadth of rights that Sky hosts in each of those markets. So it's pretty unique that the true relationship that you know Sky, who's owned by Comcast, and Comcast also owns NBC and Peacock, just to see that they're really all in with that relationship is quite significant, especially when you consider that actually in the US, the deal I think was reported to be with ESPN. They didn't they didn't sell those rights into the Comcast on NBC and Peacock. So um, yeah, there's a bit in there, but it's really interesting just to see these media rights deals taking a different shape to what they did a few years ago. Well, what's interesting is what we just described there really is about the linear business and what Sky Sports do, does in terms of distribution. But one of the things about the new deal that's taking place within um, Germany and Italy and the fact that there's more exclusivity for these rights is it now means that Formula One TV is not going to be available in those markets. And this is something we've talked about before. You know, what is your take on this sort of, they've got this OTT service platform available, but now they're going to go with pretty much just stick with the linear deal and remove that proposition for people to be able to watch that. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest question mark I have in this whole deal is the way it works. They will have F1 TV available. So F1 TV will actually be available in those markets. But what they don't have is... I think it's F1 TV Pro or Plus or the the pre, more premium option. And that's basically where the live racing sits. So in other markets, like in the US, ESPN have the rights uh, to broadcast on different platforms, including ESPN Plus. But the Formula One's OTT platform will still have the Plus or premium option. So you can watch live races through their own platform. That is being taken away out of those markets. And it's important to note, it's not just the live racing. It's not just a, a simulcast of what is being broadcast in linear. It's actually more cameras, uh, you know, a deeper immersion into the live racing experience. The, I went on social just to see what the feedback from fans are. Uh, and they absolutely love what the F1 TV Pro uh, pro- product is because of its it's just got so much more depth to it it'd be akin akin to say we talk about game pass a lot in here but it'd be akin to that not having all the extra features and bells and whistles just the live race and nothing else you know you've got you've got the red zone you've got the 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 40 minutes clips you've got all those other little extra little layers that are really really important um so that in this instance is all the other different camera angles live in the race that you will not be able to to get anymore um that, for, for me, given the number of years we have ahead, is a pretty significant thing to leave off the table completely in some of their premium markets. I don't really get that. Now, what could happen, and I'm just speculating here, is because of the length of runway they have, they might start partnering with Sky to bring some of that innovation into Sky's broadcast instead. That is entirely possible, and that would make a lot of sense. At the moment, that's not clear and being presented. And one final thing in this deal that I think is quite important is not only is that that pro offering not on the table, but there's going to be less free-to-air broadcasting of the live races uh, in markets like Italy uh, and I think Germany, where previously had some coverage on on the, the linear channels, the, non, the non-pay. So it is very much, in short, in summary, it's ring-fencing its it's consolidating those rights and creating a true home for F1 in those markets, that home being with Sky. It's going against what we've seen a lot of and talked a lot about. It's that fragmentation we've seen across the industry. Um, so, But also I've seen on, on some of the feedback I did see online is, yeah, fans are like super fans. It's a mixed bag. Some fans are quite happy with what Sky do. Some of them are less so, and this long-term commitment isn't necessarily sitting with everyone well. But again, we've talked about it a bit. 
that helps those broadcasters and rights owners work together to really build a really powerful and strong business that everyone can win, as well as the fans. And that I think is really important. Well, our audience isn't going to have to wait too long, Nick, because we do have an interview coming up with someone from Formula One that I'm sure we will pepper some of these questions at them. So for anyone that is interested in Formula One, you're not going to have to wait much longer to hear a bit more about that firsthand from Formula One themselves. Um, moving right along, one of the newer deals that just kind of came out the news here very recently, I almost I think of as this morning was when we first saw it, or at least the first time I saw it, is World Rugby has now acquired Rugby Pass as part of a wide-ranging deal with, you know, Sky in New Zealand. Um, just a little bit of history, you know, Sky bought Rugby Pass for $40 million back in August 2019. Uh, Rugby Pass, you know, it includes news, analysis, highlights, documentaries, and they're, according to their stats, they have a monthly audience of around 7 million users. Um, as part of this deal, Sky has been able to maintain exclusive domestic rights for the major events, you know, including the Men's and Women's World Cup, um, the new Women's 15s competition in the 7 Series. But, Nick, what do you think that is interesting from this? You know, you've got a, a governing body now essentially purchasing kind of an OTT streaming platform. It's actually one of my most interesting sort of ones to jump into, not just this week, but generally for a few reasons. One is, taking us back a little bit, Rugby Pass was one of the first movers into the OTT space, uh, into, at least in from the single sport perspective. And so so I've been sort of following them loosely along the way. Um, they've they've bought some rights here and there. The, the, I'm interested to hear that you bring up the 7 million users number. I think that's where it always gets a bit tricky as to what does that 7 million users mean. Uh, and again, Rugby Pass used to be all about their OTT offering. Now they're more of a complete media business. And therefore, those numbers mean very different things. Um, now, the, the, the Sky New Zealand acquisition was a very curious one when it happened. I remember that happening. And you know, why would a domestic broadcaster in the APAC region or ANZ region um, be acquiring what is a quote-unquote global OTT platform? Um, and I don't know enough about the detail to jump into that. But what I do think is it's, it's a really cool move because it, 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 I, I wrote this on, on Twitter on, on, when I posted about it, is that it has very much a bit of volleyball world vibe to it. So FIVB, the International Volleyball Federation, has its commercial property volleyball world. They've got volleyball world TV or volleyball TV, and they are trying to become the quote-unquote Netflix of volleyball. So all of the major volleyball competitions are going to be, or they want to be, available on their OTT platform, very hard paywall. Um, so you can't get a lot of content elsewhere, right? I have talked about that before in episodes gone by. Uh, now, what's important about that is this feels like World Rugby is trying to play a bit of that. So some of their rights are quite premium. Uh, and, you know, that's what I mean by that is they that sit in the rugby space. There is a lot of premium rights generating gen generous and significant revenues uh, in markets like the UK and Australia and France and so forth. But there's a whole lot of other rugby content that is not reaching audiences globally. So Rugby Pass sitting connected with World Rugby gives them a new outlet, again, not just OTT, but a complete media outlet to reach audiences all over the world at scale uh, and, and make sure that they, they're sort of, I guess, investing hard, not just on the in-house content they're producing, but making sure the distribution is fit for purpose and raising the awareness and and relationship with fans. So that's a really good move in my view. I'm really excited. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting deal. It's a, uh, 
I wouldn't say it's a bizarre deal, but it's, it's an interesting deal because you're going from a, a commercial organization bringing it into a, a governing body. But you think about the, the established audience they have, you think about the established rights they already have. They've got, they're ready, they're plug and play. Like if World Rugby were going to build this, it would cost them a lot more money to get off the ground and then, than probably what they've ended up paying for these, these rights. And Sky New Zealand have ended up with getting some domestic rights exclusively, so they're happy. But this kind of feels like Sky New Zealand just wanted to get away from this deal, get away from having the, the responsibility of managing this platform, and it's got a great home now in World Rugby, in my view. What I think is interesting is that this seems to be consistent across rugby globally. Um, you think about CVC putting in some money into a number of, uh, I guess, more European-based uh, rugby tournaments like the Six Nations and uh, the what is it, the, the URC, your, the Union Rugby yep. Championship and all that. So it seems like rugby, whether it's all together or certain parts of it, this idea of coming together, this rising tides narrative is really the strategy that they're going for. Yeah, completely. It seems to be there's a lot of more, I guess, partnerships happening across the rugby landscape to work together. We talked about, I think, the Flow Sports rugby deal uh, recently, which is of a similar vein of rugby's properties coming together. And um I just think we're going to see a concerted effort to raise reach and awareness of rugby across different markets. There's a lot of private money. There's a lot of investment from CVC across rugby. Um, so it's a, it's a very interesting time to see if they can leverage this opportunity, um, leverage this opportunity by meaning you know, collaboration between a lot of the rugby organizations, having a great platform that is ready to continue to scale with extra rights and see where they can take it from from here. Moving right on to the next one, one of our favorite topics, Nick, that maybe doesn't get all the airtime, people like to dismiss it or ignore it, is piracy. We love a good conversation about piracy, and it was released in the news last week that 108 signatures, including some prominent rights holders like UEFA, the Premier League, the ICC, as well as broadcasters, including Sky, Canal Plus, Warner Brother Discovery, have basically petitioned the European Commission to pass legislation that would allow shutting down pirated sites immediately. Um, at the moment, there, there's estimations that piracy is costing the sports sector within Europe $28.3 billion per year. Um, you've had the opportunity to speak to uh, Rache McKnight at UFC, you know, their legal counsel there and what they're doing at the US to do something similar to this. But, you know, we've talked about the battle for piracy. It's going to require a lot of people from a several different angles. So what do you what do you think of this? And do you think it's realistic that the, we can see changes legally here in the EU. Well, look, I'm not a legal professional, so that one's a tough one to answer. I think it's definitely needed. It's one of the, the the gaps in this. There is great technology that can help identify pirated streams, can uh, can help bring them down if they're given the ability to do so. But there is a major gap in the legal infrastructure for this. And we did interview and chat with Rishay McKnight, as you said, last year uh, about that and the, the efforts they're making to try and lobby government to make that change. Uh, and without that, their, hand, their hands are, are tied effectively in a lot of instances. So, so it's really important that you know, the EU does get on board and, and support this and uh, and make those legal changes if they if they can do so as quickly as possible. It will make a huge, huge difference. It won't solve everything, but it will empower uh, everyone who is in the piracy game to be able to act more quickly and ruthlessly to to attack these these different streams that pop up left, right, and center across across the web. I won't dig into it too much uh, too much detail because we've got a lot to get into, but. Uh, What's also really just really exciting that the rights owners and broadcasters are getting together here. It could be a, 
you know, the first step for them to come up with other ways, potentially in collaboration to fight piracy, not just lobby government, which is a huge and important first step, but equally, what else can they do to come together to to fight piracy? Uh, so a really, really great initiative for them to do it. Legal uh, and laws typically take a lot of work and time to get changed, but uh, this is as, I, I sort of a as big a moment for, for for it to happen as we've seen a bigger sort of calling of the arms. Uh, I think is the not quite the right saying, but you get you get my drift on, on in terms of how to tackle this this moment in piracy because it, it's not getting any easier. It's not getting any better. Right? We've talked about it so much about the impact it's having on the industry. Uh, I think the numbers that you, you you've covered already or or have them somewhere on file they're in the tens of billions of dollars. Right, that piracy is impacting the industry. So it needs something needs to happen. But how quickly European law can be changed is is, is anyone's guess since it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, well, we might not be lawyers, Nick, but that's not going to stop us from continuing this train down a legal track. Uh, an interesting story you shared with me this morning uh, is around ESPN and Meta and Facebook. And I think what's interesting about this is I've heard you mention a slightly different story talking about how Apple recently changed some of its privacy settings um, around data sharing and this idea of sort of the way we've had this sort of centralization using web three terms of all these data platforms or all these platforms essentially making money using our data. Well, now there's a class action lawsuit being filed against ESPN, essentially saying that there is a cookie that has been installed um, that aligns with Facebook and meta. And now users of, you know, whether it's ESPN.com or ESPN plus their data is now being shared with Facebook against their basically without their permission. And, you know, probably not the first one to come, probably won't be the last one to come, but it is interesting that this more data-driven world where the the laws are going to come in on this. And, you know, Nick, what was your first take when you read this story about all of these cookies and data sharing and permissions? I'd say I'm medium, like aware of what this is. And as a problem, you know, I run a media company. So understanding how cookies and, and tracking works is something that I'm I'm loosely familiar with. So uh, people within the industry would have some idea of this. And, um, you know, the Facebook tracking thing has been a- around for some time where um, for those that have, aren't familiar with it, basically what happens is any website that has, um, uh, again, I don't know where it's at now, but what it definitely was a few years ago was anywhere that Facebook has um, a basically a logo effectively on show, on display, whether it's for sign in or, or just available to share and those sorts of things. There was a pixel in that tracking link that would link to Meta's uh, ecosystem. And effectively what they would allow them to do is to track you and all your movements across the entire web, right? So wherever you went to a website that had that tracking pixel installed, that would be um, that would be tracked by by Facebook and by Meta. So basically, as a result, they were getting this incredible data and insight. So they understand Chris's likes, dislikes, behaviors, etc. But to the point where even if you didn't have a Facebook profile, didn't have a username, they would still track you. You'd just be an, a, like quasi anonymous. You know, they would have this whole complete picture of you. They probably would know your name because of the data they'd be capturing, um, but you wouldn't be an official user. And that's where it got a bit blurry is like, is that legal? Is that okay? Et cetera. Right. So that's where it was a few years ago from what I understood. And then obviously the saga with Facebook and data, which, you know, go watch the Netflix documentary and understand more about that than I can, I can explain. So I think part of that still exists. Now the Facebook, the Apple um, change regulation um, 
has impacted that ability to track people's behaviors for Facebook. They don't have any of that data and information or nearly the, the level that they did. Um, again, this is all from what I understand. So if anyone listens to this and goes, Nick, you are wrong, please write in and I will I will correct it. But I'm, this is how I understand it to be. I'm lo- love to caveat things as I go along just so give me an out if I get it wrong. Uh, and so Apple has sort of cut off that ability for Facebook to track, um, track the data, which doesn't allow them to allow advertisers to target people as effectively as they could. Okay, so where the class action lawsuit goes into is it's it's blur it's a blurry line. And I again, I, I we've we can find the I can share the the link online and people can have a look at the story themselves. There's a delineation between. Um, this class action lawsuit's about something to do with they're sharing the data with Facebook, but they're not sharing it without prompting them to say sign up to either Facebook or sign up to ESPN uh, Plus as a subscriber. It's just a, it's just a general tracking uh, channel. Um, so I don't know enough of the detail, but it's significant, I guess, just for people to again understand that if they didn't already, that's how some of the tracking works. Uh, and will be quite significant because Facebook is still one of the leading advertisers for all of the major streaming platforms and subscription-based platforms and membership platforms in sports uh, alongside, you know, maybe Google and, and others. So if though that relationship is, again, made more difficult to navigate, those that money, that, that the money that many sports are investing in advertising and, and developing their businesses through acquisition of you know, paid advertising will be having to be shifted if I guess it's made even harder than it is now. So I'm not condoning uh, condoning or saying ESPN have done anything wrong or right. Let's, let's be clear. I don't understand. It's, it sounds like there's a blurry line here, but it's it's something to follow for the industry just because it might be that everyone needs to just double check how they are linking now with, with Meta's platforms because it might be that maybe they're not linking in the best way possible. But ESPN is obviously a big brand that everyone will be following what they're doing and how they're doing it. Well, as a subscriber to ESPN Plus, and given we're in the middle of an economic crisis, if the uh, class action lawsuit goes through, I'll more than happily collect a paycheck if uh, it comes my way. <laughs> yeah, well, let's see what happens with that one. It's, it's yeah. an interesting one, nonetheless. And I thought it just, it just came up on my LinkedIn um, uh, from from someone in the industry, and I thought it's worth flagging because of its role, uh, you know, what Facebook does from an advertising perspective. Well, how about this for a segue, Nick? You know, I'm looking for a little paycheck. Um, what about Live Golf? They're looking for a paycheck. You know, there were some strong statements made by Greg Norman that, you know, in the U.S., broadcasters were desperate to get a deal done with them. Um, it was reported that, you know, some of the people they were speaking to were NBC, CBS, Apple, and Amazon. And it kind of looks like what they're going to end up doing is having a deal with Fox, except they're going to be paying to be broadcasted, not the other way around, if I understand it correctly, Nick. Yeah, the American saying I hear a lot on American TV shows is the optics aren't great. Uh, yeah. And uh, and on this, you know, you can't have the CEO uh, come out and say, oh, you know, that everyone's just knocking down our door and the next day or the next week it comes out with this, with this storyline. Um, one thing I would say is uh, it's probably not coincidental how quickly that story came out afterwards given the... The, the wars we're seeing in golf right now. Let's just let's just say that. Um, look, I mean, so for the notion of them bidding for for bidding for the rights or paying for the airtime, let's say on those platforms. Uh, so I, I reached out to a few people about it. Uh, I, I'm not too familiar with how that plays out. I had heard of examples of it before um, in the UK, for example. I was aware that um, I don't think it's confidential or not, but the, the British Basketball League many years ago, talking about a decade or so ago 
were having to pay to get onto Sky Sports, you know, to broadcast and produce the the content on the platform there. Um, so like these things are happening in other markets, no doubt as well, because they need that exposure. Uh, if anyone, if anyone's trying to work out why they would do it, it's a pretty simple game of get exposure on those platforms. Then you can sell sponsorship. Then you can sell, um, you know, partners to be involved. If you don't have this exposure, you can't sell the sponsorships for the same value. It's it, and it's that simple. Um, so they need the airtime to just make sure the numbers are a standard, so they can talk to sponsors uh, or partners with reliability. Uh, and so, and sometimes uh, some of the deal makeup. I had a uh, Reese Beer I think, on from Meta. Uh, who's a good follower as well, who sort of shared some of that online with me on social was basically suggesting that, you know, some of the infantry for say advertising and sponsoring of the content itself on the platform. I think what he was saying, if I remember correctly, was uh, it can sit therefore with the rights holder, uh, the rights owner in this instance, it would be Live Golf to go and sell and find partners for, and then do either a rev share or some sort of deal to distribute the revenues accordingly. If, say Fox had bought those rights, then they wouldn't be able to necessarily go out and do that themselves. That would be the broadcaster who has acquired those rights to do it and, and sell it to their own partners. So that's a give for people that maybe a bit of a sense as to why these deals might happen. Um, and inevitably, once they get some runs on the board, it'll be a lot easier for them to then go to other broadcasters in, in a year from now and say, hey, look, these are the numbers we were generating. This is the ratings we were generating over at Fox or whoever was was uh, the broadcast partner um so we can bring this to you if we work with you and that's and that's that's how why they would do it yeah we can have the argument whether or not a saudi-backed uh sports organization needs the money um but that we're not we're not going to get into that can of worms nick uh but you know <laughs> speaking of you know we're talking about the ott awards and the first ott awards uh wwe won platform of the year um and then very quickly turn that platform around and shut it down to go to Peacock. Now it, it exists in other places, but just shows how quick things are. But it looks like the WWE is going to take that playbook again, uh, this time in Australia where they've had success. And now it looks like they're going to be joining a major broadcaster there and putting their OTT platform, WWE network within Fox tells, I believe it's called binge is the streaming site. Nick, you're, you're the Aussie. You might know more than me on this. You gotta say with a thicker Aussie accent, binge. Right. So, yeah, that's their entertainment product. So, for those that aren't familiar, Foxtel is uh, the big major telco out there, probably owns the majority of major sports rights out there. It has a platform called KO, which is, uh, you know, a, a pretty much a, a, a bit like ESPN Plus, but for the Aussie market, in terms of a lot of the, the premium sports rights are either in the Foxtel's main linear and pay product or in KO, and this is their entertainment version. Binge is their entertainment version. So it's interesting, firstly, the WWE is is not in the sports part of this. It's in the entertainment part. Well, not too much of a surprise, but uh, I thought that was just interesting given, you know, you, maybe the audiences might be more similar in terms of, you know, overlaying who would be interested in this product. Maybe the, the sports audiences might be more relevant than the entertainment audience. I'm not sure there. That's a speculative guess, but that's what they have they've done. And I actually forgot to mention this, I think, before, uh, Chris, but what I, I sort of took away from that Sky deal we were talking about earlier, Sky and F1, is a bit of the WWE playbook in terms of that single home for those sports properties. You know, they're effectively giving up on that opportunity, right, um, to to engage with audiences at scale directly. So, you know, WWE's made a made a conscious decision. They are going to be a, a media and content business. They're not going to be a platform business. Um, I mean, they are still providing their platform in a huge amount amount of markets, 
But if the economics work out, they're quite happy to, to pull that press that button and pull the trigger and so they've done it in another market like australia which is you know it's probably australia's arguably the best comp a comparison uh, to the us i think in terms of the dynamics of the market so it kind of makes sense in that regard it's just a much smaller market to begin with a you know with less than 10 percent of the population of the us yeah well like i said it, if it if it worked once why why not try it again you know if it's not broke don't fix it is, is the is the great saying and you know something that's maybe in need of a little fixing is man the the segues are just rolling in today nick something that we you know we talked about needs a little bit of fixing <laughs> might be the regional sports network setup um in the usa and we recently talked about a story where it looked like the rights holders might be the ones that would step in to save um, you know, ballet sports in, in particular from what they're going through right now as a business. And one example that's just now come up is the Cleveland Cavaliers are looking like they're going to basically cover the subscription cost for their season ticket holders, which is about $19.99 a month. And I think we talked about or hypothesized this might be one of the ways that um, content can almost be brought into a membership. And we've talked about you know, even for people like Disney Plus, you know, content is just going to sit as part of a broader membership. You know, is this basically just that playbook right there that we're, we've spoken about before? I mean, it just makes so much sense, doesn't it? Uh, you know, even if even if subscribers or sorry, season ticket holders have to pay a little bit more for it just to be packaged altogether, it just saves everyone time, reduces friction, makes it so much easier for everyone to get access to the content rather than have to subscribe to it, get another service, right? So it just makes a lot of sense. And again, it's it's another reason why the notion of those regional sports rights should or could be going back to the teams at some stage because they can just package that all together and make it, you know, wrap it up in a nice bow and just hand it over to season ticket holders who are willing to pay up front to kick off the season. Um, so... I, and I guess just generally, I would say if anyone is interested in following, you know, what certain teams or rights holders are doing generally in the digital space, Cleveland Cavaliers are one of the market leaders there. So they're definitely worth following. You know, they're, they're, they're doing great things in the Web3 space. I know you've spoken to those guys out there before, Chris, um, and they they seem to be really on it in terms of providing value to their fan base, uh, particularly through digital means. So I think it's just a, it's a sign of where we need to go. And it's actually, if you think about it, it's a bit, a bit mental that we are not there, but it's when it, everything everyone's sort of fighting for, I guess, a, a piece of market share that these deals get segregated. But it just makes sense that it's all in one place, one deal. You know, if, if, if a, a season ticket holder in all practicality had to pay a little bit more for it to be packaged all together, it wouldn't be a difficult for decision for them to make versus having to go through the, the whole process of signing up with a new supplier or provider. So it just makes so much sense that they they've done this. Uh, it, it'll feel good. To, it'll feel good to fans and season ticket holders, and it'll just make life easier and lo- no doubt increase the conversion rates of um, people who are subscribed to um, the RSM platform to begin with. Yeah, Mike Conley and his team at, with the Cleveland Cavaliers is great. Um, definitely like for an organization, you know, that's that's not the size of the Yankees or Real Madrid. You know, these big pockets. You know, they really do maximize. The, the, what they're giving out to people. And I think they're a great case study of different ways of digital transformation done right. Yeah. And I would, I would add, actually, there's a really good podcast he's done recently with Thomas Alomez, who's a friend of Sports Pros, who produces uh, regular features on the, the website and has been involved with some of our events. Some of our events, uh, the Sports Tech World Series is, uh, I think, the, 
the business, but also I think Sports Tech Feed, if I remember correctly. Apologies, Thomas. But go check it out because he just gives a really good deep dive into tangible examples of what they've done in the Web3 space around NFTs and so forth that has worked and fans are engaging and he gives really tangible insight. So it's a really good listen if anyone wants to um, to, to learn more about what, what clubs can actually do in this space. They, they're ahead of the game in terms of act, putting things into action. Yeah, well, the last one we just want to briefly touch on because it's a bit of a seems to be a bit of an odd story and there's other news going around the platform as a whole. But the Rugby League World Cup has found a new streaming partner um, across several markets, uh, you know, uh, around the globe, including the USA. And, you know, for those not familiar, there's Fight, which is a part of the Triller brand. And, you know, Nick, it it seems it doesn't seem the most uh, usual deal that we've seen out there. Well, look, I mean, rugby league is actually a great TV sport. I obviously grew up in Australia and it was one of my, it's probably my favorite sport to watch on TV. The way it's presented, I won't bore you with details, but the way it's presented on TV makes it really good for the TV product. Um, And so it's good to see them getting deals in place to extend their reach. Unfortunately, what's a bit obscure about this deal, it's with Fight, who are basically a combat sports OTT player owned by Triller. Now, I do think, if I remember correctly, I'm just remembering this now, but fight. Did they win the La Liga rights in the UK or the, did they win them and lose them again? I can't remember. They definitely won them, but I can't remember what they did with them. I think they might've had to give them back if I remember to Premier Sports or something. Um, I don't think I'm saying anything un- incorrect there. So anyway, uh, they have sort of had to pull out of that deal. Trilla seemed to be in, in a bit of trouble with some lawsuits uh, happening in the US with some of their creator relationships. A lot of legal chat in this, uh, this pod pod this week uh, so a bit obscure that you know basically a combat sports property uh would be doubling down on on basically securing rugby league world cup sports rights though for what it's worth i made a bit of a tongue-in-cheek comment on twitter and lots of fans were very excited to see that they had partnered with fight uh, tv to have their content and didn't realize i was you know making a bit of a joke of the fact that it was on a combat sports combat sports platform but there you go actually they do say that uh wrestling is a good uh transferable skill in tackling in rugby league so a lot of the um, defenders will practice wrestling moves so there you go there's a maybe that's the segue maybe that's what they've picked up on yeah well i mean as an american football coach i can tell you um they always had the offensive and defensive linemen do res- uh, wrestling in the off season while they made all the receivers and doobies do track in the off season so yeah i guess there are transferable skills there whether or not it it's going to work for them streaming wise uh we certainly do hope so because we've had rugby league world cup at a, at a few of our events and i know they're doing a massive thing hosting three world championships simultaneously all here in the uk coming up um, relatively shortly. So it is going to be a massive event on that scale, but that's more operational and less uh, streaming, but lots of content to be produced nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, the reality is for, for rugby league, it's a big sport in a couple of markets. Um, so it just gives them a platform that expats from those markets. So markets being Australia, New Zealand, England, and then a bunch of Islander countries uh, can basically access it easily that that is the crux of it i did find it quite funny that i think the the fight uh uh fight one of the fight executives uh was basically banging on about uh his quote was something to do with how um how competitive it was that they were so glad that they won those rights and i just can't imagine that it really was that competitive given yeah. the, the the 
the popularity of rugby league in say markets like Germany or Italy and so forth won't quite mm. be uh, a competitive place for, for those rights. But anyway, you know, big events do generate some interest always because they are moments that they can draw fans. So who knows? Maybe I'm off, off, off base there. Who knows? Well, Nick, pleasure as always to, to have a chat with you. There's lots of news going on. And like I said, for anyone that's listening to the beginning of the podcast, um, if you're interested in Formula One, uh, you want to know more about the deal, you want to know more about Drive to Survive, um, you won't have to wait too much longer. Nick and I have an interview this week, um, which will be really good. And from here, I'm actually going to hand you over to our technology editor, Steve McCaskill, as he speaks to Tom Janicott, who's the director of video solutions for Sport Tech Solutions. So I do hope you stay tuned and listen to that. And We'll catch you next week. Hello, and it's time to welcome another guest to the pod. This time I'm joined by Tom Ejanico, the Director of Video Solutions at Sportex Solutions and the Managing Director of View. Sportex Solutions is a technology joint venture between Delta Trey and the DFL, or the Deutsche Fußballliga, which is responsible for the top two tiers of German soccer, including the Bundesliga. Um, Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I think most of our audience will be familiar with the work that Delta Trade does in the broadcast and, and digital space, but perhaps less so with Sportex. So can you explain how the joint venture came about, how it works, and what it offers the sport industry? Uh, sure. So first of all, thanks. Uh, thanks for the invitation, Steve. It's nice to be here. And um, yeah, I mean, Sportex Solutions uh, was a, um, a joint venture between uh, Delta Tray and the DFL when it came to implementing the, the long year strategy of the DFL to um, start doing everything on their own and start owning the entire processes for for their competitions. So uh, Delta Tray had a had been doing the data for the the first and second Bundesliga for for years, and um, and the DFL said, okay, well, we would like to own this this data and then try to to own our processes, and that's why they created that joint venture Sportex Solutions that um, that focused on that part, and then over the over the years that kind of developed into. Well, one, why just the data part? Um, let's focus on all of the technologies that are surrounding the, the Bundesliga and the, the DFL competitions. So that's kind of how it came about and how it's uh, how it's developing. It's quite exciting. How do you work with federations and sports organizations around the world? What sort of challenges are they looking to solve? What are they looking to do better? How does the technology that you've created help them to do that? Yes, yeah, so on, on one side is the is the data part um, that, that we talked about. So I think a, a lot of the, the goals of, um, of federations and organizations is is to own that data and that's where that's where everybody is is kind of going to be able to uh, to create their own products and to make sure that they have a standard across the entire the entire league and their entire competitions. So that's on one side on the data, but I actually also on the video side, you know, that's one of the latest development of, of Sportex Solutions is acquiring a company called View uh, to start uh, implementing and, and owning uh, officiating uh, services. So many video assistant referee and goal line technology. And with that, you know, we come with a with a full package. So we talk to federations and organizations around the world. They they're trying to to figure out how do we optimize um, all of those different services that are at the moment quite separated, and you know they're contracting different company to do different things, and 
were coming here and saying, well, you know, how can you how can you bundle all of that together? How can you make everything work synergetically together? And how can you um, how can you make sure that with your budget restrictions, you achieve a, a level that can can match the level of the leagues that have a, a slightly higher budget and that um, that that create a certain output. Uh, you see it also with uh, international federations that, um, of course, want to set the standard for these things, um, and everybody strives to to meet that standard, and that's where we come to them and try to figure out solutions to uh, to get as close as possible. And and in that context, how does having the the DF DFL as part of that organization help you? Obviously, it must be really useful to have such a high profile. Uh, soccer organization as part of this joint venture yeah absolutely and you know first of all the access to, to the employees um we have a few uh, ex dfl employees that are working at sportex solutions and access to to the entire dfl organization if we're looking for consultancy or for you know co-ownership of a certain project but mainly it's the fact that the Bundesliga on the data side and also on the on the video solution side is is leading the market um, in uh, in quite a lot of those technologies. So they are they are pushing us as a shareholder <laughs> to uh, deliver a certain level of service. And that's also the strategy of the DFL to kind of build up products that will meet their standard and then be able to uh, go and offer these products worldwide. So. So they are absolutely key um, to to achieve our vision. And so, what does a, a typical Bundesliga match day look look like for, for for what you do? Yeah, so I will focus on the video side. That's my level of expertise. So we have uh, twelve vans at the moment uh, that that drive to to all of the venues. Uh, there are eighteen venues that have a game uh, every weekend. And nine of those are in the Bundesliga, nine of those are in the uh, Bundesliga 2. Um, all of the Bundesliga venues also have um, a stadium infrastructure for Golan technology. So they have the cabling, the cameras, uh, all of that installed permanently in the stadiums. So we have our vans that go drive to the stadium and then um, hook up to either the stadium infrastructure um, for, for Bundesliga stadiums or in, in the second league, they will hook up to the, to the video truck that is producing the TV signal. And all of the signals are kind of bundled in that van. And then with a connection to a remote center, which we have in, in Cologne in Germany, there we have uh, 10 different workstations that are kind of alternating in between games. And each workstation is connected to a van and therefore to a, to a stadium and a game. And there's the whole preparation phase that goes from about kickoff minus six hours uh, all the way to kick off to kind of do all the regular checks and uh, calibration of the offside line and uh, sync, uh, synchronizing all of the cameras, etc. All of that preparation goes into it. And then, you know, about an hour before kickoff, uh, we have the referees that arrive uh, both on the pitch and, um, and in the remote center for the video assistant referees. And then we go back to, uh, to all of their checks, you know, making sure that they're comfortable with the system. And then we're good to go for kickoff so on a on a regular match day we've got at the stadium we have two people uh with the van so one person stays in the van during the match the other uh is next to the monitor next to the pitch and in the remote center we have four people per match so two uh, video assistant referees and two operators that's excluding then the central people so we have a, a tech team 
um, that one person can can follow about three matches at the same time that make sure that the technical setup is is, is stable and they kind of monitor it and uh, do our quality control let's say uh, as well as the referee observers uh, there's also always uh, at least one referee observer for uh, for all the matches they're based in the remote center and they kind of uh, assess the referee decisions and the var decisions so a lot going on <laughs> absolutely and in terms of these technical requirements what are the priorities what when you go into a venue, what what's the the most pressing concern? I mean, the 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 basics are quite simple. Um, you need the you need power <laughs> first of all, and you need video feeds. Uh, so as long as you have video feeds, which are usually provided by the TV production on site, um, you can you can do a VAR system. So it it's very basic. Uh, the the basic system is is very simple. You know, it's uh, you hook it up with power. You have your video signals that come in. They are recorded and they are uh, shown to the VAR. Um, so that's the very basic level. But of course, in the Bundesliga, for example, we have a much uh, a much bigger setup where we have, um, like I said before, a permanent infrastructure in the stadium with 14 cameras that are all cabled permanently. And then uh, we have a permanent connection also to, to a pitch side location for the, uh, for the monitor, for the referee. And then we have a connection from the stadium to the remote center in, uh, in Cologne. So that is obviously a much bigger infrastructure, and, and I know a lot of the big leagues are are already there or going in that direction of of having a remote center. But we can really scale from the the smallest setups uh, where you almost go on a training pitch and uh, and hook up with two or three uh, TV cameras to uh, the biggest stadiums in the world. So so that's uh, quite in- makes it also quite interesting. Yeah, so if this is intended to be a, a scalable solution, there must be some, uh, you just touched upon a couple of them, but what's the difference between doing it for the Classica in, in, in the Bundesliga or, and doing it with a, a third you know, a third division match where there might be maybe just a thousand spectators, no, nowhere near as global profile? What, what are more differences between those two ends of the spectrum? Yeah, I mean, the biggest difference will be the number of cameras that are available that makes the, the job of our people um, either much, much easier or much, much harder. But it's it's maybe not the way that you would think. You know, if you have less cameras, of course, it's much easier to operate. If you have only four cameras to choose from, then you will always be able to look at all four cameras and make sure that you can see the situation from all four cameras. If you have like a World Cup final, you have 34 or 36 cameras, plus your goal and technology cameras on top, which also deliver images to the VAR, you can go up to, you know, in the 40s, 50s in terms of number of cameras. So how do you design a workflow? That, that's where the, that's the key word, really. How do you design a workflow to be able to show your VAR the relevant angles for this situation while having such a big choice of cameras Uh, you know how and how do you do that in a reasonable time to make sure that the var can make the decision without holding up the game on on the pitch so that's our that's that's a big a big working topic and it's you know evolving um after every match day because of new um new situations that we find and we do a lot of analysis on which cameras are useful for which situations and how can we best do the layout of our cameras how can we best deploy our people to look at all these cameras 
and then how do we also work with the with the VARs um, to make sure that they see the angles that they need. So this is a uh, this is let's say that the biggest change for these these type of games. And then you have the automated technologies as well. So with the goal line technology, you know that the ball in or out, that's not a situation that the VAR will need to care about, let's say, because he gets an automated message if the ball is inside the goal. The same goes for the virtual offside line. If you have a, a bigger stadium, you have a better quality of the of the virtual offside line. So these are the things that kind of come into play there. And do you now have, so I guess, uh, common frameworks for different levels and different resources available for for each venue? Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, very different packages, but but our approach is is very customized on what people want. You know, it goes all the way from one of the projects that we have is in in Portugal in the third division, where we essentially deliver a machine, and that is. Um, that is operated by the the people responsible for the TV production. And the VAR kind of comes into the TV truck at the venue and is there and almost operating the system on their own. Uh, so that's the solution that they prefer because that's the setup that they have. But another league might say, well, no, I don't want the VAR to do things on their own. I, I, I need someone to, to show them the images. So they will have a person on site, which which then changes things again. So there's there's a lot of let's say packages that we could put together, but at the end of the day, it will come down to the the needs and the the, the wishes um, of the individual organizations, federations. And obviously, VAR and 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 goal line technology are the most high profile use cases for, for technology like this because they are so, they are so visible. Um, but once you've got this technology in place and, and the processes in place, what are the other possibilities? What, what else can you offer you know, um, clubs and clubs and federations you know, on a performance level and uh, fan engagement, broadcasting? What, what, what else can be done once you have this basic, uh, I guess, this infrastructure in place? Yeah, and that's, uh, that's a very exciting, exciting topic. I think... Um, the video assistant referee project really opened a lot of doors um, because by definition, the, the VAR has to have access to all of the TV cameras at any given time. So this means that all of the TV cameras are recorded and are stored on an, on an independent uh, machine, let's say. So what can you do with all of this footage? You know, all of a sudden you have access to all of the TV cameras at any given point in time. What can you do with this? And we see where the where the technologies are going at the moment with cloud-based solutions, with um, automated streams, etc. Et you know, what what can you do with all of this? And and Sportex Solutions is kind of in the in the place of um, providing services to the organizations, to the federations which includes the VAR system and, and provides, let's say, that, that base structure. And then we're lucky to have the other shareholder, which we haven't talked about too much, which is Delta Trey, who focused in uh, over the last 30 years or so on, on bringing, let's say, digital products to uh, to the fans and, and in improving the fan experience as a whole. So that is where, you know, we come to the other end of, okay, we've we've provided a base structure to our to our clients what are the next steps? You know, how can you bring those uh, even further and use what you already have uh, for a lot of different applications? And that's where um, 
that that's where it's really exciting. And then on top of that, so you have all of the video, and then you have a partner like Delta Tray who delivers digital solutions for uh, for all kinds of different partners. But then you bring in all of the match data, which is uh, the other side of this as well. You couple that with all of the video, and you have a lot of applications, you know, endless applications for not only you know fans but also analysts and on the entire performance uh, area. Yeah, I think that is an interesting point. Actually, we've talked about the benefit of having a major football organization as part of the joint venture. But then you've got some like Delta Trey, who I did say at the top, um, ha- has this experience on, on the digital side of things. And I guess that all comes into what you're saying about being an end-to-end solutions provider. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's really what goes goes down to it. You know, we over the course of this of these few minutes, we've kind of uh, shaped the the kind of vision of Delta Trey, Sportic Solutions, and the DFL in creating this entire ecosystem. You know, starting with the stadium infrastructure, going into the you could call them B two B services. You know, the the services that are for the organization, the federation, uh, like for example VAR, GLT, and then using those as the base for everything else that comes out of that in terms of digital products applications for uh for fans and for people at home so yeah it's it's very exciting i mean if we look i guess a bit more short term um this past week was the first time that many people would have seen semi-automated offsides in action in, in the champions league and more and more people are going to become aware of it at the world cup later this year that tends to be I mean, for example, the, the last World Cup was the first time lots of people would have seen VAR in action. It was before the you know before the Premier League and using leagues before that. So it's going to be a showcase. It's going to be another example of technology getting more involved in 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 soccer. So would you be able to describe what what people will be seeing and, and where the technology can go can can go from here? Perhaps provide some context in, into into what will what they're going to see on their screens. Yeah, so so like I said before, I think the international federations like UEFA and FIFA, for example, they are really setting the standard and they're putting a lot of effort in co-developing also these these new technologies and and bringing them to life in their competitions. And that's really the case for semi-automated offside line. You know, they've really been pushing this project to improve um, the VAR decisions um, and also open a whole new world of of opportunities because we're all of a sudden talking about uh, not only tracking the center of mass of the players, but we're talking about tracking the entire limbs. Uh, so where's the player's hand, where's the player's head, where's the player's shoulder, etc. And that then, again, when we when we talk about this, uh, this kind of flow going from the stadium infrastructure, which is a camera-based system also for, for these technologies, uh, then going into again the the fan engagement products i think it's a, it's a huge huge new world that is opened uh, by this new technology so i think it's it's very very exciting and in the beginning we'll see it a lot in the var situations because that's the situation that is driving this um this project but there will be a lot of byproducts that come out of that um We've seen in in the Netherlands they they did a few tests of virtual recreations uh, of the match and showing what the referee actually on the pitch what the referee actually saw during a situation. So putting yourself in the eyes of the referee using a virtual uh, recreation of the situation, 
uh, using the, the tracking data. So uh, things like that are, are really, really, are really, really cool and really new to see for the fans. Yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's really uh, an exciting project. And uh, like I said, the, they are setting the standard. Um, there will be things that go well. There will be things that don't go well, just like any innovation. Um, and things that that come on well to the fans themselves, and, and things that are not uh, that that don't arrive so well. And and we as as Delta Trace, Portex Solutions, and the DFL, of course, keeping an eye on it, and uh, and uh, you know very interested in these new developments. Absolutely. I mean, I think you know the, sh- the shift to the shift to streaming, the shift to to digital platforms is creating new things that we probably couldn't even have, you know, imagine happening, uh, even, even 10, 10 years ago, you know, we, some things that don't work, like, you know, 3d was a, was a thing for a little while. And I personally never thought we'd see VAR in football. If, I, if I'm, if I'm being honest, it's something I wanted to see for a while. And, uh, I just, I just never thought it would. So it, we have absolutely no idea what, what's around the corner, but it's, it's good to know that there is this experimentation happening. Tom, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. 